Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you again for this opportunity to gather together, to listen to your word being preached, to sing and glorify your name. And I just pray, as we sang this morning, that our hearts would be revived, that we would have a fire in our hearts for you, and that we would remember that this is all because of Jesus, who was willing to sacrifice his life on the cross for the sins of each one of us. We thank you for that gift, and I just pray that you would help us to accept that and to allow us that to work in our hearts. We just pray you be with Brother Melgan as he shares your word with us this morning. May you bless him, may you guide him, direct his thoughts, his words that he shares with us. Open our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Greetings in Jesus' name and welcome to each one this morning. Beautiful fall, Lord's Day morning. Uh, good to be together. Somehow, this is uh, kind of my type of fall. Long, extended, mild, beautiful color. Uh, it's, uh, I'm enjoying this thoroughly. This morning's message is titled, A Life of Humility. And I'm thinking especially of maybe this evening's communion service, and I didn't even ask Lester what, so what he's preaching, so I hopefully I won't uh, cover what he did. But I think with, uh, with a book this thick, I think we got plenty to go on, so uh, hopefully we can keep going tonight with what you got planned, Lester. But I'd like to invite your attention for a text, first of all, to Luke chapter 14. Uh, this, is, <clears throat> this is Jesus speaking uh, through a parable. Now, a parable was just a, uh, a fictitious person, not usually mentioned a specific person by name, could very likely be a real life scenario, oftentimes as it relates to their culture and their practice. But uh, Luke 14 does address a very specific um, practice in their culture and in their society. And uh, it has to do with, with that, with humility. Let's read Luke 14, beginning in verse 7, and we'll read down to the end of verse 14. And he put forth a parable to those who were bidden. When he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, Sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee, and him that come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou shalt begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, and when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Then he said also to them that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and thou shalt be blessed for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Experts 
in management tell us that people wear this invisible sign that says, please make me feel important. So if we heed that sign, we can succeed in human relations. By the same token, if we say things or do things that make people feel insignificant, we will fail. Because then people tend to respond becoming, by becoming angry and resentful because everyone wants to be noticed and feel important. Did you ever wish that you had an opportunity to be a real hero? Like maybe rescue some child that's about to drown in a pool or save someone from a burning house or whatever? Oh, I did. When I was, when I, was I don't know what age I was, younger, probably early teens, and not that there was much chance it happened because I lived in a remote farm way off in the boondocks and so there wasn't even much chance of that happening. But for some reason, that, that, I thought that'd be so cool. It'd be on the front page of the local newspaper. Maybe that's just me, but that was, that was kind of uh, something that I, well, I didn't dwell on a lot, but I did dream about that a lot. And, uh, and I, I think that's probably tendency for a lot of us at some point in time. And Jesus is kind of addressing this very thing right here. In their day, there was status symbols that helped people enhance and protect their high uh, standard in society. If you were invited to the, to the right homes and if you were seated in the right places like he's speaking of here, then people would know how important you really were. You know, the emphasis was on reputation, not so much on character. It was, it was more important to sit in the right places than to live the right kind of life. You know, the closer you sat to the host, the higher you ranked on the social ladder and the more attention and invitations you received from others. And that's exactly what he's addressing, especially on the latter part of that reading. And naturally, many people rushed to the head table when the doors were open because they wanted to feel important. Um, how vain is that? And yet, are we any different today? And I think it's probably a little bit that in our setting, it, say like at a wedding, now most times there's assigned seating for <clears throat> family members especially, so you get to sit right up next to the bridal table, you get a better view, that's, that's pretty typical in our day. But after that, you're pretty much free to sit where you want, and uh, that kind of reminds me of, of this reading right here. Jesus was, uh, like I said, this was a parable, so there's no person mentioned by name or any specifics given, but it was a teaching lesson that he used at that time. And I'd like to look at a life of humility as exemplified by Jesus. Um, and I had to think, first of all, as before I get into that, I want to look at really who is Jesus. Jesus was present since before the beginning of time. In Genesis, at creation, God said, let us make man in our image, Genesis 1.27. So God wasn't alone. Jesus was present there. I want to take you through a couple other uh, appearances, you might say, of 
very likely Jesus. Um, he appeared to Abram. This is not yet, well, the same person, but his name was still Abram. In Genesis 12, um, verse 7, where we have God bringing or, yeah, making this covenant to Abram at the time. And verse 7 says, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there buildeth he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. Now, there's, there are several times in, in the Old Testament where it says the Lord appeared to a certain person. And uh, I'm not, I don't have any way of proving this, but I, there's, there's commentators that strongly believe that this would have been Jesus in the form of a person. And I like that thought. I tend to agree with them. There's other ones. There's back in chapter 17 of Genesis. And there's even in uh, chapter 18, verse 1, where we see the Lord appearing to, uh, to Abraham and in the form of three men. Now, uh, I'm not quite sure I didn't look into that exactly what that means, but God appeared to these people in person in what would appear a normal human being as they would expect to see them. And he even offered to prepare a meal for them. And he did, and of course, that's when they that's when they told them that next year this time you're going to have a baby boy. And they were, what were they, close to 100 years old, way past childbearing age, and thought that was Sarah thought it was a joke at first, um, but God warned her that no, that's that's not a joke. That's going to happen. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time into this, but then later on in that same chapter, chapter 18, we have, uh, it says the men went towards Sodom because they were there to, well, judge Sodom. And it says that, uh, verse 22, the men turned their faces from them and went towards Sodom, but Abram stood yet before the Lord. Now, I'm not quite sure if one of them stayed with Abram and the other two went doesn't give us a lot of detail, but I'm just giving you a bit of a, just a bit of an insight onto times when God would have appeared, likely Jesus, as a man to these different people. Another interesting, a little bit later, when we have Joshua, who was their new leader, or Moses had, uh, had died, and God had uh, instructed Moses to ordain or anoint Joshua to take them into the promised land. And here was Joshua getting ready for this battle. <clears throat> Joshua, <clears throat> excuse me, Joshua 5, verse 13. Uh, I'm going to read a couple of verses there and invite your attention to that if you care to. They were getting ready to <clears throat> conquer Jericho. And the city of Jericho was scared. They had reasons to be because they had heard some of the other things that happened and the no contest battles that they had won. And so they felt doomed, rightfully so. Verse 13 of Joshua chapter 5, and it came to pass 
When Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord told said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereupon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. And then it goes on to the next uh, couple of verses in the next chapter. Uh, this conversation continues between Joshua and the Lord. So I'm just pointing these things out to show us that Jesus was, well, as I said, he was there since before the beginning of time and creation and then throughout the Old Testament history appeared several times. Jesus, even though exemplified a life of humility, was certainly um, able, was, was the son of God and part of the Godhead that appeared to in different times throughout history. Moving on into the New Testament, as we think of Jesus beginning his ministry, turn with me to John chapter 2. Now, this is Jesus' first miracle. His ministry had begun, and um, we have, prior to this, his baptism by John the Baptist, and then doesn't tell us how long after that, but here they find themselves at a wedding. John 2, going to be reading verses 1 through 11. And I'd like you to notice especially the humility of Jesus in, in this account. This is, uh, this is not a parable. This is a real life happening. It doesn't give, uh, well, it does mention some specific people, but it doesn't mention the bride or the groom or any of those people. But it is a real life happening, not a parable. Genesis 2, verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when, when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and pair unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servant which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cain of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Okay, so we have a setting here where Jesus and his disciples, along with his mother, were invited to a wedding, and they ran out of wine. Now, that was serious. 
That's like running out of food at a wedding. How do you feed the rest of the guests? That was a serious problem. One commentator thought there may have been some kind of a fine imposed on them for that. I don't know by whom. But at the very least, it was a major social disgrace. You don't invite more people than you can feed or host. That, you just don't do that. That's terrible planning. And this is what happened. Now, I don't know if Mary was some close relative of the family, the bride or the groom. She seemed to be somewhat concerned, seemed to take it upon herself to somehow mitigate this problem. And I don't know why she even mentioned the Jesus. There's a lot of questions that come to my mind. Did she expect Jesus to do something? Jesus hadn't done a miracle yet. He hadn't performed anything. This was the beginning of his, of, of his ministry. So here we have uh, a lot of questions, but Mary was uh, somewhat involved in doing what she could to help. Jesus responded to her by reminding her of his divine timetable. Jesus had mentioned that earlier when he was only 12 years old. Remember, he got lost in the temple when they went back to Jerusalem, and they started on their journey home, and a couple of days into it, realized he wasn't with them, had to turn around and go back and find him, and he reminded them, don't you know that I need to be about my father's business? So this is not the first time that Jesus mentioned this, but he again reminded her, he is on God's timetable, not hers. Anyway, so here we have her coming to Jesus and bringing this to his, his, his attention. And, you know, in, in that whole, uh, his life here on earth, the uh, scribes or the Pharisees, Pilate's, or Herod, or Caesar, or no one was able to do anything to circumvent that timetable. They were powerless, for instance, to take his life before he's ready to give it. And he, at that right time, gave his life. They didn't take it. He gave himself. And so Mary instructs the servants to do what he asks them to, to do. And I don't know if she sensed the bitter resistance, doesn't tell us. And so he gave them instructions to fill these water pots. One commentator thought there would have been 20 gallons each. Well, that's a lot of wine. Now, I don't know if, if of course, it doesn't say that it all turned to wine. It says, as they bear it. So there was, there was certainly some act of obedience I doubt that they had running water like we have in our day. It might have very well had to have been carried from wherever. But it says they filled them to the brim. And then he asked them to draw out and take it to the host. It says, and they bear it. Can you imagine the questions that would have come in their minds? You know, God honors faithful servants, even today. Did back then. He does today as well. How mundane and how simple a task. Not always easy, but just simple obedience by faith. I'm sure that never happened to those servants before or since. And yet, they did it, and God honored 
their faithfulness. We see this was the beginning of miracles on his, for, during his earthly ministries. Now, as you follow me through that, who knew about this miracle? Did you follow that? Who would have known that this was even a miracle? Who was the one group of people? The servants, right? The servants knew. Did the bride and the groom or the host or the governor, as he calls him, the governor or the host didn't even know that. And, uh, of course, the, the, um, the disciples knew, and I assume that Mary knew, but very few people. Now, it doesn't give us the size of this crowd, but there was just a handful of people that would have known what happened, that would have known what took place. Think of the humility of Jesus. Yeah, he was not one to make a big show and pat himself on the back and, and boast of his accomplishments. He never did that. I see a very humble servant in doing this. Again, saving this family from, at the very least, a huge social disgrace, maybe even a financial burden or a fine. Jesus acted like nothing happened. A life of humility as <clears throat> exemplified by Jesus. And this was the beginning of his miracles. Um, he didn't have a big long track record of miracles. So this would, this was, as we said, totally new to the, to the, to the people of, of his day. They hadn't seen anything like this before coming from Jesus. A lot of lessons from that miracle. I'm always blessed when I, when I read through that. There's a lot of, uh, Examples there that we that we could draw from a lot of lessons that we could draw from And now I'd like to look a little more closely at Jesus as being our supreme example turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 in this chapter and Paul is addressing these people and exhorting them to unity and humility. And I find that there's, there's quite a few, of course, there's a lot of examples we could draw from. And I had to think of, oh, maybe like the account of the woman at the well. Jesus met that Samaritan woman. Uh, somehow it seems compassion and humility kind of go hand in hand are sometimes a bit hard to separate. That's one example of that. When we think of Jesus' compassion and his humility, in that setting, they were, it wasn't socially acceptable for a Jew to talk to a Samaritan, much less a man, a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. That wasn't done. That wasn't acceptable. Jesus crossed those social barriers because of his compassion and his humility. He wasn't concerned about his reputation. That didn't matter to him. It was more about character. So let's take a look at this reading right here. Philippians 2, 3 verses 1 through 11. If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. 
let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should be confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's take a closer look at this. Again, looking at Jesus as, the, <clears throat> that's what the writer is doing, as our supreme example. To be like-minded takes humility. Speaking there for the first couple of verses, this word like-minded is a Greek word actually, but it's drawn from two different words, and it comes from a word that means a baffling wind or backward. Something that's a bit unusual, it does seem backward to be like-minded sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes it's a bit hard to do that. We had a hard time with like-mindedness there this morning in Sunday school class, and to some degree, it wasn't really bad. But um, we had an interesting discussion on a few things. Uh, but it also means to have an understanding, to cherish the same views and values, and to be harmonious. <clears throat> Like-minded does not always mean we have to think exactly alike, but that our basic core values and views are together um, with all of us individuals, we certainly all have our own views and many times interpretation of a particular verse or reading, but like-mindedness does take humility. At some point in time, we need to come together and agree in some way and be able to move on with a bigger picture in mind. The next one, thinking of a life of humility, we all are sinners saved by grace, bound together by the same love, taken there in verses 1 and 2. We have a common love, and that is our love for Jesus Christ. A um, life of humility requires this. The next couple of verses, look not out for the good of yourself, but for the good of others. What is your motive for serving? You know, uh, according to our last election, a lot of you have some area that you were called on to serve. What is your motive for serving? You know, serving is easy if it doesn't cost anything. Are you willing to serve at your own expense? Many times it's not so expensive in money, but time and effort that we need to expend to serve. <clears throat> you know, there was a, <clears throat> excuse me, I read a testimony of a former communist who spoke of their philosophy. 
They never ask a person to do an easy little job. <coughs> little job. <coughs> Excuse me. They never ask someone to do just an easy job. They ask boldly to undertake something that will cost. They make big demands and they get a ready response. This person calls the willingness to sacrifice one of the most important factors in the success of the communist program. Do we do that to one another? Do we ask a big commitment, a big demand? Certainly some of us are called on with bigger requirements than others. But by the same token, there is an equal portion, a proportionate amount of grace given to those as you avail yourself. And I wanna challenge each of us to that. Give yourself to the work and God will grace you with energy, time, and even money to do so. You've probably heard the term a consumer Christian or consumer Christianity. The, just the Webster's definition of consumer is to use up or to spend wastefully. You know, there are a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of consumer Christians who are just in it to see what they can get. You know, what's in it for me? Is this gonna provide a bigger thrill than the previous whatever it was? A consumer Christian, Jesus doesn't have a lot of use for a consumer Christian. I think that we do well to kind of adopt, maybe adopt the communist role model philosophy and make big demands on each other and get a ready response. And then we also see uh, again in verse seven, an emphasis more valuing character over reputation. In Jesus' day, those that wanted the high seats at the seats up close to the head table at a wedding were more concerned about their reputation. In doing so, then they might get another invitation to another wedding and get to sit up near the front at that point as well. Value character over reputation. I won't turn to that, but I had to think of the account and with the widow and her two mites as Jesus and his disciples were sitting around watching that and they would see these high-ranking people in society putting these huge sums and and uh, really make a big show of it and this widow put in two little pennies as it would be in our day and Jesus praised her highly for that by, God, by the grace of God, be obedient to the will of the Lord. Taken from verses eight and nine. Um, certainly we have, um, again, Jesus' example to follow, who was in fashion as a man, humbled himself, remember he was God, but fashioned himself as a man and humbled himself to God's will, which was the death of the cross. And then the last couple of verses, verses 10 and 11, all will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Just for a quick reading, let's turn to Revelation chapter 5, and I'm going to read a few verses as it relates to that. 
Revelation 5, verses 9, begin reading in verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessed and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Truly, as we, as we serve, we will bring glory to God. This is true humility as exemplified by Jesus. May we be encouraged as we, as we go forth and uh, serve in whatever area he calls us, and by grace, by God's grace, uh, serve him as he gives us uh, strength to do so. Thank you again for your prayers. I'm going to ask us to stand for a closing prayer, and then we'll remain standing for a closing song. Shall we stand? Lord, we thank you for your blessings on us. Thank you especially for the life of humility that as we have seen and exemplified by Jesus. Thank you that he was willing to uh, be obedient to you even to the death of the cross. Thank you, Father, for the supreme example that we have, especially as outlined in scriptures. Father, we realize that at times it does seem a bit backwards a bit uh, certainly unnatural, but I pray that you would give us grace to to uh, serve in whatever, whatever area that you have called us. Thank you again for this reminder of the emphasis on character versus reputation. Thank you, dear God, for your blessings on us in this way. Forgive us, Father, for at times being more of a consumer Christian. Help us, Father, to be able to serve and give in a way that <clears throat> is pleasing to you and will bring honor and glory to you. So now we pray your blessing further as we, as we dismiss, as we part from here. May you bless us as we leave from here. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.